packed. That is that Luke is in the caravan. But what is more, this word here is a more expansive sense. It's the kind of packing that the Uyghurs and Baileys do. It's the kind of packing that the Montgomery's do. You know, two and a half weeks of laundry, planning, and preparing. That's the Greek word here. There was a thorough level of preparation because there was a great group of people who were going. Not only does Paul have his traveling buddies from Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece who have gone along with him, but in verse 16, his caravan gets larger as the disciples of Caesarea join with him. And one stands out of an son of Cyprus, an early disciple. We don't know anything about this. But the one thing we do know is worth noting. They were to lodge with him. Though he is of Cyprus, he owns property in Jerusalem. He is evidently a very hospitable man. Because there is a large group of people about to descend upon his home. And they are from all over the world. There are Ephesians. There are Corinthians. There are Samaritans. There are Jews. Something is about to happen in the house of Manasson that is eschatological and catastrophic to the Old Testament experience. Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans are all traveling together to the same destination, the house of Manasseh. Dear saints, there is a hospitality that is at the heart of the gospel. That there is a rich diversity to the people of God that they yet all come together to share with one another. One of the great joys of this congregation is that I can repeatedly stand in a circle of four, six, eight, ten people and be the only one born in America. There is a fantastic ethnic and international diversity to our congregation. It is a glorious thing to behold. This last week I read one theologian who said the church should not aim at diversity. I was saying, what to then do we make of Jesus' statement every tribe and nation? What then do we make of God's longing for the fullness of humanity to come together under one roof and one house? One of the other joys we have in this congregation, my friends, is a spirit of hospitality. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you are eating a meal you didn't prepare today? How many of you are contributing to a meal that someone else is actually hosting? Is there not a tremendous spirit of sharedness that is at the heart of our love for one another? We don't see the barriers and the boundaries that the world sees. We live with this hospitality and this harmony that we come together as those who have one thing in common. Christ. And this is what emerges from the text. That the one thing in common that can unite Jew and Gentile that can unite all the diverse people of the world, Yankees fans and Red Sox fans, the most bitter rivalries known to humanity, can yet sit and fellowship together because they have one thing. They have Christ. This is what makes the difference. This is the birth and foundation of unity and of hospitality. And it is apparent to us in the following verses. Notice in verses 17, 18, and 19. That in coming together, having had this hospitality in Jerusalem, 
they begin to talk. What is the most awkward moment in all hospitality? Those first five minutes where you sit there in silence staring at each other, wondering what you're talking about. But once the conversation gets going, it's usually pretty good. What do we have to talk about? Notice in verses 17, 18, and 19, they have one thing to talk about. The brethren received them gladly. Paul, the very next day, no sightseeing, no wasting time, he immediately goes up to James and the other elders who are present. He goes before that presbytery in Jerusalem. And remember from his epistles in Corinth, he has been collecting a gift for the poor and the needy. He goes before the elders and he presents to them the gift of the Gentiles, the token of their love to meet the needs of the poverty, impoverished people of Jerusalem. And when he does so, he greets them. And he begins to say in detail, notice that in verse 19, in detail, those things which God had done. The topic of conversation is not Paul's amazing ministry. The topic of conversation is not the tremendous contributions of Timothy, Titus, and Luke. No, indeed. The focus is rightly on the work of God. It is God who has saved the Gentiles. It is God who has brought them into fellowship with the Jews of Jerusalem. It is God who makes of humanity one person and unites them in Christ. It is the work of God to take us out of our selfishness and to put us into self-sacrificial service. It is God and God alone who can bind us together in the fellowship and love to which we are called. Friends, God must do the work. But we get to talk about his work. James and the elders respond in like manner. They engage in the conversation, beginning in verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God. They rejoiced that God was doing great work among the Gentiles. And then they add, you see, brother, brother, the myriads of Jews who now believe. God was not alone with Paul in the mission field. He was also there at home with the Jews. God has done great things among the nations, but he has also done great things right here in Jerusalem. This is the edifying conversation that is set in the center of the table when they come together in Jerusalem. It is not primarily their goal to talk about the weather, the sports, their lives on this superficial earthly level. Rather, they talk about what God has done. My friends, what makes up our conversation? What fills our chatter and our chat? What is it that we seek to engage in as we talk together? Is it the things that God has done for us? Is there a glorifying of God in an expression of gratitude? To put it in a very specific sense, what topics of conversation are you ready to have this afternoon when we say amen? Will we talk about the things God has done among us? Will we glorify God for the works he has done in our lives? Will we express gratitude and praise? He is the one who has done it, who has brought us together. Let us speak of him. But in addition to talking about God, notice they are also willing to talk about problems. 
they come together in this bond of love, born of God's work, of the union that they have, that Christ has saved them and no other, they are also willing to actually face the problems, the real sins and struggles that exist between believers. They really occupy a center place in the church. They say to Paul, they are all zealous for the law. And they have been informed, verse 21, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them they shouldn't circumcise their kids or keep the customs passed down from their parents. They have been misinformed about what Paul is doing. It's a rather understandable misunderstanding. You see, have you read Galatians? Paul kind of sounds like he's telling the Jews no more circumcision. I mean, that seems to be exactly what he's saying. And yet in context, Paul is saying no more trusting circumcision for your salvation. We know this because Paul found Timothy in Derby and wanted to take him with him on his missionary journey. So while he's writing the letter to Galatians and saying, you must not put your faith in circumcision, he is circumcising today. He's clearly not against the custom. He's against putting faith in the custom. He's against having a rival for Christ. It is Christ who must bind us together, not our shared circumcision. There is not a binding of Jew and Gentile through circumcision. No, our union and communion is found in Christ. He is our circumcision. What we have in common is that he was cut off for us together. In like manner, Paul clearly does not put off the customs of Moses. Do you remember what Paul did when he left Corinth? He crossed the bay into Centuria. And there is only one thing said about Centuria before Paul hops on a ship to sail to Asia Minor. He says he cut his hair because he had fulfilled the vow. The exact thing he's about to be asked to do by the elders. Paul willingly, voluntarily cut his hair and fulfilled a vow. He is clearly keeping the customs of Moses. But he will not tolerate for a moment those customs becoming a part of my faith. A necessity for salvation. No, Jesus and Jesus alone is what stands at the center of his faith. My friends, this is what gives them the freedom to face one another's problems rightly and to say, Paul, there is a problem. The people don't understand what you are saying and what you are doing. Their fellowship is a willingness to talk about the hard things because Christ stands at the center. Not our work, not our identity, not our self-worth and our values. There is a fragility, my friends, to so much of our relationships because we feel so entirely dependent on the affirmation of one another because we have thought so little of the affirmation of Christ. We are so poorly rooted in the love of God that we feel dry and withered when the world around us does not affirm us. And yet, Paul is not so. The elders are not so. They hold out for us an alternative model that our union with Christ can be so life-giving, so joy-filled, that we're willing to talk about hard things. That we're willing to have conflict.
and to struggle with one another. And most of all in this passage, to accommodate one another. Not only do they come together for hospitality, not only do they then talk about the wonderful things that God has done, not only do they then share the conflict, the fears, the struggles that are between them, they turn to Paul and they present to him a plan of accommodation. They say, Paul, this is what we tell you to do. Verse 23. There are four men coming to the end of their vow. We want you to take them. We want you to pay their expenses so that they can shave their heads. And we want them you to be purified with them so that you can go up and offer the sacrifice in the temple with them. This is the completion, we believe, of a Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. The specific phrase that is used there in Numbers chapter 6 of a Nazarite vow is when the end of their days of separation have come. The whole point of a Nazarite vow is to be illumined. To be alone and isolated. But as that vow comes to an end, the person is brought back into the fellowship of the believers. They turn to Paul and they say, show to us that you embrace the fellowship of the saints. That you are willing to walk in an accommodating manner. Let us see your personal investment. Pay the price. Go through purification. Give the time. Give the money so that we might know that indeed you love these Jewish believers. This is the call. Will you love others? Notice the burden is on Paul. Nobody says Paul is wrong. Nobody repeats wrong. In fact, the Jewish, the Jewish elders will end up agreeing with Paul as they state in verse 25. They're on Paul's side on this issue. But they recognize a weakness among their believers that must be accommodated by the strong. This is the Christian ethic. It is the business of the wealthy to bear the burdens of it is the business of the strong to carry the weight of the weak. It is the business of those who have to care for those who have not. It is Paul, in his strength, who should take upon himself the burden of accommodating the weaker brothers, those who feel the weight of Moses yet upon them. Isn't that stunning? And Paul does it. And Paul does it. It should not be a surprise, given what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew I became a Jew. Given what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, I would be cut off for their salvation. Given the lengths that Paul would go for the salvation of his fellow Jews, it is not a surprise that his heart is in it. He is willing to accommodate in verse 25, they make clear that this accommodation is not a compromise with the gospel. The Gentiles do not need to do it. They need to do what is necessary for the fellowship to remain intact. But they do not need to eat roses. It is not an article of salvation. Christ stands alone in the center. And so Paul follows through. Notice that in verse 26, it's the very next day. The very next day, he wastes no time. 
Paul is not resistant. He doesn't have an awe. Paul is, Paul is submissive to the counsel of his elders. Paul is respectful to their plan. Paul, it seems, is frankly in agreement that this is not an issue of policy or theology. It is an issue of charity. How do I love my fellow brothers and sisters? How do I accommodate their weaknesses? How do I bear their burdens and so fulfill the law of love? Paul knows who he is, united to Christ. And so when he walks with Greeks, he is willing to eat. And when he walks with Jews, he is willing to refrain. He is willing to embrace that ministry that puts Christ front and center. Christ in the middle. My friends, this is what fellowship looks like. Real fellowship. The fellowship of the saints that finds unity in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That embeds the welfare of our community in Christ and says he is what we have in common. He is the peace that matters. This comes to the fore most prominently in the final verses. Notice the striking contrast with which we end in verses 27 through 30. When the seven days were almost up, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out. Do you remember what the goal here was? I mean, this is a pretty ironic turn of events, right? The whole goal was that Paul would preserve the peace with the Jews of Jerusalem by showing personal conformity to the law of Moses, even while they preserve its passing away with Christ. And yet it fails miserably. Not because of the Jews of Jerusalem, not because of the fellow believers, specifically the Jews of Asia. Many of them, most of them, are probably from Ephesus. Know this because in verse 29 they recognize Trophimus the Ephesian. They know him. Out of the crowds that are filling Jerusalem for the festival, they can see Trophimus and they know who he is. And so they stir up one another. So they stir up the crowd. The other thing they have in common with the Ephesians, they know how to ride. Do you remember that? Paul there in Ephesus down the hands of a riot. As all the pagans who worship Diana in the temple of Ephesus are enraged at this threat that is against their religion and their city. Here too, Luke creates an incredible contrast by pointing out how the Jews of Jerusalem are a carbon copy of the pagans They have thrown themselves out of the covenant community. They have alienated themselves from that faith which is passed down from Abraham. This mob has more in common with worshippers of Diana in Ephesus than it does with any of its forefathers. In fact, the verbs that Luke chooses to use here, stir up, lay hands, cry out, Drag away are all the 
words that he chose to use when he described Stephen and Jesus. On the basis of two and now three witnesses, those who love this place, this temple, have shown they do not love the one who came to fulfill it. They have shown definitively that they did not hear Moses, who was saying Christ is coming. They have shown perfectly and completely that their condemnation is just. They are the ones who have alienated the people of God, the law of Moses, and this place by refusing to embrace the Christ who is the fulfillment of all those things. Jesus, who is the true Jew. Jesus, who is the law of Moses in the flesh. Jesus, who is the temple, who said, I will tear it down and I will replace it. Indeed, we can set up the parallel more fully, friends. Do you remember at the end of the sermon about Ephesus? Do you know what you cannot find in Ephesus today? A temple to Diana. Do you know what you can find? A church. Do you know what you cannot find in Jerusalem today? A temple for Jews. Do you know what you can find? You are the temple of the living God. You are the house that Christ has built with his body and his blood. And he is tearing down the temples of this world. And he is replacing them with the fellowship of the saints. He is standing at the center of a new humanity. A new heavens and a new earth formed and fashioned in his righteousness and his holiness. He is making all things new. He is making all things his own, starting with you. Dear friends, the fellowship that you have is not based in your shared desire for some socioeconomic worldview. The fellowship that you have should not be rooted in your common interests and hobbies, it must indeed be rooted in the true fountain of the new heavens and the new earth, the true cornerstone of the new humanity, Christ and Christ alone. That's why this table is here this morning. That we might eat together, that we might drink together, that we might confess together, this is who I am. This is who we are. It is Jesus who brought us together. It is Jesus who binds us together. It is Jesus who makes us one. Let us share our lives. Let us talk together. Let us come together in hospitality. Let us recognize together that Jesus is replacing all the religions of this world. gods and temples of this age will fall, and in their ashes and ruins, the church will be, worshiping Christ in union with him and in communion with each other. Dear saints, it is Jesus who brings you together to share your lives.
lies by which we put to death the old self. We give you thanks that you have given us Jesus Christ, in whom we find a new identity, a new family, to whom we are bound by his everlasting love, his atoning death, his saving resurrection. And we give you thanks this day that in him we can find worth, in him we can find joy, in him we can find peace. And we pray now, Father, that the words that we have heard would sink deep into our hearts and bear abundant fruit. We pray now that as we turn to the table, we might taste and see that you are good. And that we might partake together in our shared action. We might see that we are united to each other by our union with you. And that our bond of love might now flourish this week as we seek to care for one another. Father, grant us grace that you might build us up like living stones into a holy house and be glorified in us as we love one another and you. Our Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name.